after services. I hope you stick around and have lunch with us. And uh, when we're done, we'll read some scriptures and sing some songs. And we will not have our normal evening service uh, today. Um, I also want to make an announcement. Uh, we, we got recent news that Sean was accepted into a, a facility in Huntsville. So we're bittersweet because he'll be leaving us. But he's obviously doing uh, what's best for him. And we're really excited that he's, uh, things are moving in the right direction. So uh, we won't see him for a while. So as soon as we get some information or address... Be sure to try and write him a letter, send him encouragement while he's gone, and uh, we'll try and support him as much as we can from afar because uh, we're excited for you, things going in the right direction in someone's life is always an awesome, awesome thing. Um, well, well, we'll jump right into it. Um, I've been wanting us to study uh, some characters and, and stories from the Old Testament for a, a while now, uh, but I've learned that preparing sermons from the Old Testament is really hard. Um, it, it's... I don't know the Old Testament as well as you know the New Testament. Christians in general, we, we don't understand it as much as we do, uh, you, you know, say like the Gospels. It's, it's hard to relate to, to our lives sometimes. Um, and we, earlier this year, we studied a lot of the letters of Paul. First Corinthians, Paul talks about things like orderly worship, relationships between husbands and wives, very, very plain, accessible topics. If you flip to the Old Testament, you'll find things like how to punish a non-Israelite slave if they steal from you. Or maybe ten chapters of Jeremiah weeping and condemning Babylon. It's obviously uh, still important and still useful, as we've been studying on Wednesday nights. But it's not as always as accessible. It's sometimes just harder to, to read those stories and really tie them to our lives. So uh, what I hope we can do, in, uh, in, a, in a little bit, of, I'm hoping this will be a series, even if it's just a few weeks. We'll kind of look at some stories and some characters from the Old Testament. And kind of look at their experiences and some of the lessons from their lives that we can sort of take to ours. So uh, our focus today uh, will be Jacob from the Old Testament. Um, J- Jacob is probably someone we, we know pretty well as far as Old Testament characters go. Probably know more about his life than we do Micah or Obadiah, for example. Um, you know, Jacob is the brother of Esau. He's the son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham. There's probably a lot of scenes from Jacob's life that we'd at least be sort of loosely familiar with, kind of have a, a, a somewhat of a background knowledge of. Um, there's a lot of uh, stories that, you know, I always go back to VBS. That's where I seem to have all these little Bible stories rolling around in my head in the Old Testament from. Uh, but but to this morning, we're actually going to start from one that, uh, that came up briefly in our Wednesday night Bible class. And uh, one that didn't make the cut, at least when I was in VBS. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 32. Um, Genesis chapter 32. Like, like I said, this, this has been on my mind since kind of preparing for our our Wednesday night class, because on Wednesday night we talked about angels, and we'll be doing that for a couple weeks. Um, and you remember, if you were in that class, you remember we looked at this, and we kind of focused on uh, this other figure in 32 who is uh, the angel of the Lord, or uh, the other main character of this little section, the one who is not Jacob. <laughs> uh, but, but this morning we're going to focus on Jacob and kind of his story, how he got to this, this point in his life. So we'll start by reading in uh, Genesis chapter 32. From verse 22, and I'll read down to verse 28. Genesis 32, from verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
And he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I know I've kind of dropped us into a, a scene with very little context, almost like those movies sometimes that sort of take you to the very end and you know, then sort of work backwards. We're going to do a little bit of that this morning. We'll get to the context in a minute. But for right now, I want us to just look at the exchange Jacob has with sort of this angelic figure. In verse 26, he says, Let me go, for the day has broken. And Jacob tells him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asks him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. Jacob wants something. In this case, he wants specifically a, a blessing of some kind. He wants a, a promise that things are going to go well for him in the very immediate future because he's very scared, he's very <coughs> nervous. He wants something. And he's realized that this, this figure that he's been fighting with has, has at least some sort of divine authority and has the ability to give it to him. And so he... He holds on very tightly and says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And when this, this angel or this figure of the, of, of the Lord, this divine authority, he, when they see how much Jacob wants this, how much he's willing to fight for it, we might even say, uh, he gives in to Jacob, sort of. He gives Jacob some assurances because he explicitly says, For you have striven with God and with men... And prevailed. But he still doesn't really answer Jacob's question. He, he still doesn't really tell Jacob who he is or what, what he's doing there. And if you, if you read on in Genesis 33, you see that Jacob was not just looking for a... What Jacob was looking for was a blessing, was this, this sign that, that God would be on his side in this battle that Jacob thought would take place the next morning. But in reality, what happens is, is not a battle at all. Jacob expected his long-lost brother Esau to come against him with this great army of, of soldiers and men that he was traveling with, but instead, something very, very different than that happens. Genesis 33.4 says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Jacob was pleading with God. He was, he was looking to God for victory in this battle, but in reality, there's, there's no battle at all. In a scene not unlike the parable of the, the prodigal son, Esau runs to Jacob and, and kisses him and weeps. He, not only does he not have any desire to harm Jacob or any of the family he's traveling with, but he, he actually helps them. He's been longing to see them. If we, if we read chapter 33, we'd see that he, he helps Jacob and his family who've now been in a position of, of great need. It's interesting, I think, how God answers prayer sometimes. Sometimes we, we find ourselves pleading with God desperately about something that we see off on the horizon, that, that we see coming, that we're afraid of, that we're worrying about, something that's really weighing heavily on our mind. And, and we, we see it coming far off, and we're, we're begging and pleading for God to help us through this, this thing that we're, we're afraid of. And God says, that? You're, wor you're worried about that? That's, that's, not even a, that's not a roadblock. That's not a, that's not a thing at all. There's not even a battle going to happen here. God says that, that path that you're worried about is, is exactly the path I want you to be on. If we look carefully, the, the angel Jacob wrestles with in Genesis 32 never really gives Jacob exactly what he's asking for. Jacob wants a blessing. He wants this man's name. 
Jacob thinks he needs these things to win whatever's coming up next in his life, that he, he needs this to succeed. But the angel's response is that you, you don't need those things. He says, you have already prevailed with God and with men. God tells Jacob, you're afraid of losing, but you've already won. The first kind of observation I want us to take away from Jacob's story here in in Genesis 32 is that it can sometimes feel like God is not answering our prayers. But that doesn't mean he's not giving us what we need. It it can feel like when we're talking to God and we're pleading with God that maybe he doesn't understand or doesn't see our problems or he, he doesn't care about the things we care about or it can feel like he's not concerned about the things that concern us. But just because it feels like he's not there doesn't mean he's not giving us exactly what we need. As as for why this battle, why this fear, how how Jacob found himself in this position in the first place, we're going to go back a few chapters and uh, we'll work our way back up to to Genesis 32. Um, I want us to get some context and I'll, I'll try my best to not bore to tears those of you who know the story of Jacob and Esau, but also talk about it enough so that those of you who don't are not just completely lost. So we'll turn over to Genesis 25, and we'll sort of, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, I would encourage you to go and read it because there's a lot of details we're going to skip over. But we'll sort of hit the highlights and uh, I think put them in a context to even those who are familiar with these stories it gives us to think about them a little bit differently in a little bit of a new way. So, so we're going to start in Genesis 25. We're going to start right near the end of the chapter. Uh, after the selection that, that Eli read for us this morning, we're going to start around Genesis chapter 25, down in verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the the birthright in an ancient Israelite context, is really everything that's significant about being firstborn. It's the the larger share of the inheritance. It's leadership of the family of that generation. It's a a position of not just economic, but also social and really judicial superiority. Usually, uh, when we read this, when we we reference this story, the lesson is, don't be like Esau. Don't, Don't trade your birthright for a bowl of stew, right? Don't... Don't give up a much greater, much uh, larger gift later for a quick, cheap pleasure now. That's usually the story we get from this, uh, or the lesson we get from this story. We tend to kind of overlook this, uh, at the very least, mean, if not deceptive, attitude Jacob has. Well, as we know, Jacob is not satisfied with just the birthright. Maybe because deep down he knew he didn't really deserve it. Maybe he just had some insecurities about it or some uncertainty. But regardless... Over in Genesis 27, he conspires with his mother, Rebekah. Because you see, they were a house divided. It said that Jacob was loved by Rebekah, whereas Esau was loved by his father. So he conspires with his mother, Rebekah, to, to receive his father's blessings in place of his brother, Esau. And long story short, in Genesis chapter 27, it works. 
It works. Jacob, Jacob dresses up like Esau. He puts on these goat skins so that to, to kind of trick his blind, aging father. His, his mother cooks this, this stew, this game, exactly the way his father Isaac likes it. And together they deceive the old blind man into blessing Jacob, the younger brother, instead of Esau, the older brother, as he, as he deserved. And again, Jacob's, you, you could call it cleverness, but really it's, it's almost deceitfulness, gets him something that, that really belongs to his brother. So what we're going to pick up is, is when Esau comes in the field, he's, he's not yet aware of what's going on. He's expecting this blessing. We're going to pick up in Genesis 20, or I'm sorry, Genesis 27 in verse 30. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 30. I told you we're going to try and hit the highlights here. Genesis 27 in verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He had also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that, that hunted game and brought it to me? And I, I ate it all before you came, and I, I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him as servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? You see, again, in, in this ancient context, the words of the father, of the, the patriarch of the family, were his bond. He, he couldn't take away what he had already given to Jacob and just somehow just, just give it to Esau. He said, I'm sorry, I've already made him lord over you and all your houses. I've already given him the servants and the bread and the wine. So Isaac is, is weeping for what he's done to his son, and he cries out, and in his weeping, rather than really a blessing, almost essentially curses Esau, saying that Jacob will always be over him and Esau will always serve Jacob. And Esau, fed up with what's happened, kind of at his wit's end, if we look in verse 41, he makes a very strong, strong threat against his brother. In verse 41 of the chapter, he says, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now that I'm reading that again, it's not really a threat so much as a, as a promise. He's not saying, get out of town or I will kill you. He says, no, what's done is done. I'm going to kill you. Some very serious decisiveness in Esau's tone. He's very set in his feelings. And again, recall the house divided. Their mother kind of interferes. She tells Jacob what's going to happen. She warns him. She helps him escape. So Jacob has been deceptive cruel to his brother. He's lied to his own father, cheated, stolen what was not his. 
And now Esau's own mother is helping Jacob escape what some might see as really the due consequences of, of Jacob's own actions. This isn't a, a Cain and Abel story where one just envied the other and so he wanted to kill him out of this jealousy. Now, I'm not saying how Esau felt was right, but it's certainly understandable. He's, he's taken everything from him. And in really this position Jacob has put himself in is, is his own fault. But he escapes. And he's sent off to live with family elsewhere for a few decades or so until things kind of cool off. And a lot of time goes by, and, and Jacob ends up with, with more or less what he started with when he left. Because recall, when he, when he left town, he took with him that larger portion of the inheritance, the larger portion of the servants, of the food, of the livestock, of what they had had stored up. And in that time, Jacob kind of messed around, made some mistakes, and really, after many years, just about how what he had started with, whereas Esau despite the fact that he basically started over, has now begun to do very well for himself. And it's in chapter 32, where Jacob is beginning to travel back home, when lo and behold, he gets word that none other than his brother Esau is over the next hill. Remember their last words was Jacob, I'm sorry, Esau pretty much told his brother, as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill you. He said, when the days of mourning are over, I'm not going to do it right now, but he says, when the days of mourning are over, I'm going to kill my brother. Those were his parting words. So, we're going to look at how Jacob is feeling on the eve of their, uh, of their potential meeting. And we're going to read in uh, chapter 32, this time from verse 6 of chapter 32. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's, he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of, of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and I have now become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said... I will surely do you good. I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob is greatly distressed. He's very afraid. He's, he's even going around to certain men in the leaders of the camp. If we read more of chapter 32, we'd see that he's, he's telling them what to do or what to say if they encountered Esau. You know, say, tell, tell them everything we have here. It's, I know it's all we have and it's not much, but tell him that all of this is a gift for him. And maybe, if he accepts this gift, just maybe, he won't kill all of us. Jacob is almost certain he is on the eve of his death. I think it's very interesting that it's now, at Jacob's point in his life, that he decides to start praying. After everything that's happened, after all he's kind of done, he's decided that maybe I should do... Some consulting with God now. I don't recall seeing a lot of listening for God's opinion when he was making the whole uh, birthright stew trade agreement. We didn't see Jacob consulting God a lot on 
how to steal the birthright from his, from his father. But now, now that he sees that he's about to die, now he's saying, please, please deliver me. I, I don't deserve this. Thank you for everything you've done. I'm sorry. Please just, just deliver me from the hands of, of my brother. It's probably something that would sound familiar to a lot of us, wouldn't it? Sometimes we get ourselves into these situations and we're not really sure how we got there. We're not really sure what, what our thought process was that led to this point in time. But now that we're there, we're like, please, just, just I'll do anything, right? Just please deliver me from this. And then Jacob, I think, uh, in a very interesting move in verse 12, he kind of has the audacity to tell God, remember those promises you made me? I can't die now. You, you told me you'd make me a great nation and I'd have all these offspring. I can't, I can't die now at the hands of my brother. Look, I'm not the, the smartest person in the world or the best negotiator, but I'm, I'm not sure telling God, hey, you promised is the best way to start any negotiation when you need help, when asking for deliverance. Not a lot of praying going on when Jacob was getting himself into this mess, but now that he wants out of it, he's praying a whole lot. I think it's interesting that Jacob is distressed, he's anxious, he's upset, and, and really, truthfully, what he's worried about, what he's wanting deliverance from, what he's wanting God to save him from is, is the consequence of his own actions. It's not these external forces that have just for no reason at all just decided to come against Jacob. It's people he's stolen from, lied to, cheated, made upset. You could really, from an outside perspective, pretty easily make the argument that Jacob deserves what's coming to him. Right? The chickens have come home to roost, Bobby Boucher. He deserves what's about to happen to him. But Jacob is still crying for help. Maybe this is one of those situations where my, my own upbringing really works against me, but I, I don't really like asking for help when I know I'm the reason I'm in trouble. Just for an example, if, if I'm going down the road and a, a semi crosses the center line and it runs me off the road and I end up in a ditch, okay, I got no problem. I'll call somebody and say, hey, truck's in a ditch, can you help pull me out? Not a big deal. But... It's an empty road and maybe it's particularly uh, snowy or muddy even. And I'm driving around like a bit of a, a hooligan and I get myself in the ditch. It's going to be a long time before I call anybody. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's just me, but there's something. To, if I know it's my fault that I'm the situation I'm in, it's a lot harder for me to ask somebody else for help. Hey, can you come help me undo what I've screwed up for myself? If it's someone else's fault, I'd be like, oh, yeah, hey, come help me. It's all there, you know. But it's my fault. It's a lot harder to go tell somebody else, hey, I've messed up, uh, I, I need help. Well, the problem is, this carries over into my spiritual life a little bit. And when it comes to asking God for help with our sin, it's kind of always our fault. There's not a lot of times we can start pointing fingers when it comes to the sin we're struggling with that we're asking God help for in our life. And so I find it a lot harder for me to say, God, I need help with this thing that I know I've done to myself. I don't know if that's pride, if it's guilt, I'm not really sure. But I know it's something I struggle with. 
But if we look at how God handles this situation with Jacob, just from this, this one example here in the text, it's okay to ask God for help even when it's your fault. Because really, if we're asking God, if the, if the sides to blame are God or us, pretty much always going to be our fault. But God does not tell Jacob, I told you so. He doesn't say, forget those promises I made you. He doesn't let him hang. It's okay to ask God for help even when it's, when it's our fault, when we're the ones struggling, when, we've, when it's a problem we've created. Because now that we've sort of worked our way back to where we started, as I said we would, we see that God does answer Jacob's pleas. He does deliver him from the hand of his brother. Because unbeknownst to Jacob at this time, Esau was never really a concern in the first place. So it's, it's not exactly the deliverance that Jacob was looking for or asking for, but he does still, he is still saved. He is still delivered. The Lord does pull Jacob out of the mess he's made for himself. As we work towards our conclusion here this morning, I, now that we've read more of Jacob's story, I want to revisit that text we started with. Go back to verse 22 of chapter 32. In the middle of Jacob wrestling with the angel, look at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. Jacob thinks he's going to die when the sun rises. Many, many years ago, he has, he has cheated his brother out of everything his brother deserved. He, he took the birthright, the blessing, and even though Jacob had a very prosperous life up to this time, he got married, he, he had a large family, he's very afraid that things have come home to roost for him. But his time is up. So he, he sends the women and children to the other side of the river, and he goes for a walk by himself. And I find it very easy to put myself in Jacob's shoes right here. That's what I would do. Okay, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what's going on, but you know what? You guys, you go over there. You go to bed. I'm, I'm going to go for a walk or a drive or a run. Or I'm, I'm going to go out by myself, and I'm going to think about this, and I'll, I'll figure it out. Just give me a minute. Right, just let me get away from everything. I'll figure this out. And in those moments, when I reflect on my own life, in those moments where I'm trying to sort something out or I'm trying to struggle with something or I'm having that moment to myself, I fall back on this, this, sort of, this phrase or idea, and I think we've all done it at a time or two when we're, when we're really desperate and we're, we're not sure what to do, and we say, Lord, just, just give me a sign, Right? Whether we're struggling between two options, I don't know if I should go this way or that way, or I'm just really caught between a, a rock and a hard place here, just, oh Lord, give me some kind of sign. But in the text, Jacob was left alone, and then a man who comes out of nowhere wrestles with him until daybreak. Sometimes we ask God for a sign, and instead he sends us a struggle. And it can be very confusing and very hard because it's not really what we're looking for. 
But God's kind of looking at us and saying, how bad do you want what you're asking for? I don't know if this is the, the angel was testing Jacob exactly, if he was just keeping him busy until the dawn rose, if he was just letting him blow off some steam because he was stressed out. I, I don't know. But I don't think the fight was really about winning to the angel because if we look at verse 25, he knows exactly where Jacob's weak point is. And we kind of get this impression that the angel could have ended this fight at any point in time if he wanted to. But he kind of seems to be making Jacob prove himself. Puts on his Tim McGraw hat and says, how bad do you want it? Right? How much are you willing to fight for what you're begging me to just snap my fingers and give you? How bad do you want it? Are you willing to struggle for it? Are you willing to endure a little bit of hardship or a little bit of testing in order to get what you're asking for? And it's interesting that all these years later, Jacob is still searching for that same thing that got him into the situation in the first place. When Jacob took Esau's birthright, he didn't just give up this stew in exchange. I think he gave a little bit of himself. He said, I don't want this role or this identity as a younger brother that you've given me from birth. I want what he has. Give me that. Not satisfied. He, he physically disguises himself as somebody else because he wants so much to have what should be given to his older brother. And when he does this, he loses more and more of himself spiritually, I think. And now as he's facing what he believes to be certain death, I think he's having a bit of an identity crisis. He's afraid that his, his mistakes and the sins of his past are going to come back to haunt him, and the, those are going to be what defines his life. His mistakes that he's made, the people he's hurt, and the things he's done wrong are going to be his identity. And so on the cusp of this evening, he, he begs the angel. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's still looking for that blessing. That same thing he was looking for so many years ago. And the angel, being the messenger or the face or the, the voice or the figure or some sort of authority of God, knows Jacob. Sees Jacob for who he really is. He sees Jacob for what he's really asking and he says you know what you are no longer Jacob Hebrew for he cheats as we heard Esau reference back in chapter 27 he says you are no longer Jacob but I'm going to give you a new name Israel for you have struggled with God and with men when we ask God for something it can feel like he doesn't hear us but we know he gives us what we need and, and know, trust, that even we are the ones who have created our own problems and we are the makers of our own destruction, God will still deliver us if we call on Him. But know, when you call on Him, when you, when you call for God to deliver you from this evil and this, this fear that you're facing, know that sometimes it will be a struggle. God doesn't promise us when, he, when we call on Him that He will just snap His fingers and make our problems go away. But He does promise us that He will help us through them, as He did Jacob. But also know that when you call on the name of the Lord, He will give you that new name, that new identity, that new persona, that new creation that we've talked about so much. 
When you call on the name of the Lord and you ask him to give you that new life, he will give it to you. Doesn't always snap his fingers and make it happen. In fact, sometimes it's a great struggle. But he does give it to us. If you are with us this morning and you are calling on the Lord, if you need help with some struggles you're facing, even if it's the struggles you've put yourself in, we know the feeling. If there's anything at all that we can do for you, we ask that you come at this time while we stand and while we sing.